Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Billy, and I get the privilege to serve as one of the pastors here, and it is a huge privilege to serve you guys uh, in that way. Uh, I'm thankful that you're here today. Uh, our church uh, is laser-focused on a mission, and that mission is to connect people uh, to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's what drives everything that we do. You never have to wonder, uh, what is Billy's motivation? What is our motivation in the songs we sing? What is our kids uh, do and we want you to know that we want you to be in a growing relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. And so that's our aim and that's what uh, we want to do. A couple things uh, announcement-wise before we get started uh, with today's sermon. If you want to go ahead and open up to the book of Mark, that's where we'll be, Mark chapter 2. Uh, while you open there, uh, I want to share a few things. Next week, uh, we will be starting a marriage series. Uh, and the marriage series uh, will be titled, uh, When Sinners Say I Do. So we're going to be looking at kind of uh, what marriage does and, and reveals our brokenness and how do we respond to that brokenness. What is God's design for marriage? Uh, what are the major problems that we face uh, in marriage? How do we prioritize our life to honor God uh, in our marriage? And so we're excited about that. That'll be a three-week series. Uh, a marriage series is a great opportunity for you to invite others uh, to church. So if you know people that would come to church uh, to hear about God's design for marriage, uh, do invite them for next week. Uh, also, if you are a senior or the parent of a senior in high school, uh, next week on Mother's Day we're doing our Senior Sunday. Uh, so if you guys have not been contacted or you have not gotten uh, in touch with Blake about that, if you'll stop by the tent after today, we'd love to get you uh, lined up to be a part of our Senior Recognition uh, Sunday. So uh, today we're continuing, really finishing up our series that we've been in uh, called Re-Engage. And so if you've been here, you know We've been kind of talking about the pandemic and how the pandemic has affected our relationship uh, with God. Statistics are showing that uh, you would think a pandemic would push people to God, but actually it has hindered people in, in a lot of ways. A lot of people have stopped attending church. A lot of people have quit reading their Bibles. And so uh, we, for the last five weeks, have been talking about how to re-engage in our relationship with God. We've talked about uh, community and how being a part of biblical community is important when it comes to engaging with Jesus. Uh, we've talked about serving and how uh, serving is an incredible opportunity to be a part of what God's doing and in a way that we connect with God. And then uh, last week we talked about generosity and how the grace of God produces generosity. And that's an opportunity uh, to re-engage. And one of the things that I've learned and loved about this series uh, is that it, if, if you're new at our church, it reminds you of who we are. Uh, it tells you who we are. If you're, you've been here for a while, it reminds you. For us, uh, we are a church that's all about a mission. That mission is to connect people to a growing relationship with Christ. But we believe four cultures should characterize a church that follows Jesus. And those four cultures are community, right? We believe real life change happens in community. Serving, we believe every person has a purpose. We're saved into the body of Christ to be a part of God's team. Uh, we believe generosity, that the gospel produces generous people. And so we should characterize, our church should be characterized by generosity in the community and in the church. And then today, we're going to talk about evangelism, how a church that loves Jesus should be characterized by uh, evangelism. And the way we say it around here is that we believe saved people live sent, right? So we cannot experience the grace of God and then not turn around and give the grace of God and share the grace of God with other people, right? God rescues us to then put us on the rescue team to go after other people. And so let me pray for us and we'll uh, jump into Mark chapter 2. Father, we love you. 
Uh, God, you're so good to us. Uh, Father, we, we just enjoy being in your presence. God, we enjoy worshiping you uh, through song. Father, we love opening your word. So God, I pray as we do that this morning, uh, God, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, your word says that it's living and active uh, and sharper than a sword. And so we pray this morning, uh, God, that you would open our ears, open our hearts to hear from you. And Father, we would uh, apply this message to our life and not leave, uh, leave here the same way that we came. So Father, we, we trust you. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, you know, I, we're, today we're talking about this idea of evangelism, right? Evangelism is just uh, a church that cares about lost people, that wants to reach uh, lost people, you know. And in our culture, uh, in the Bible, that seems pretty simple, right? That the church exists to reach people. Jesus came to save, uh, to seek out the saved and lost. And so Jesus' church would be characterized by a group of people that, that rallied together around a mission. But uh, one of the things that we've seen in our culture today is that churches in, in large part have, have kind of backed off on the mission of God, right? And in the New Testament, we see very clearly uh, through Jesus' teaching, through the book of Acts, that literally the church formed for the mission of God. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, before he ascended to heaven, he said that time, disciples, wait for Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and he is going to empower you to be witnesses, right? To uh, testify to who God is, the resurrection and the power of God is in Judea, Samaria, be a family of people that live on mission. The best way to think about it is not a cruise ship, but maybe an aircraft carrier, right? So what does an aircraft carrier do? It's a place that planes fly into, they get fueled up, they get equipped uh, for what they need to do their mission, and then they fly out and accomplish their mission. That, to me, is a better picture of what the New Testament church is all about. It's a place for you to come, gather together, be encouraged, be strengthened in your faith, but then to be sent back out into the world uh, to penetrate darkness, to, to go out and actually share the gospel and reach people and, and make disciples of all nations. And this is very important for us to understand because this mission is urgent. I want to give you some statistics, and I don't want to give you these because I want you to remember numbers. I want to give you these because these numbers represent names, and they represent people, and they represent souls. And these souls will spend eternity somewhere, and God has given us the opportunity to play a part in reaching them. You know, the, the county of Tombs, which is where we are right now, has about 27,000 people in Tombs County. As of 2021, that's kind of the residential population. Well, most statistics statewide, Georgia statistics, show that only about 30 to 35 percent of people in our state uh, attend a evangelical gospel preaching church. What do I mean? Why would you measure it that way? Not by how many people say they're Christians. Well, we live in a place, and if you are growing in your relationship with God, you will want to be a part of a family of people that are doing the same. We live in a county of 27,000 people, and if you take 30% of that away, then that leaves you uh, with 18,000 lost people uh, that are directly in our county, not to mention the surrounding counties around us. Listen, all you got to do is go to Walmart, right? Walmart is the best uh, description of our community, right? If you want to go in Walmart, and hey, nothing shows you uh, the power of the devil like Walmart, right? You go in Walmart, and there's some people that are doing some crazy stuff. They're getting mad, you know, everybody gets mad because there's no, not many cashiers. You got people beating their children. I mean, you got all things going on in Walmart. But one of the things that it, it brings me into the law, 
And, and it's very easy for us to get caught in a Christian bubble where we never get out and see the people that God has placed us here to reach. And a lot uh, in the church, there's this tendency to become inward focused and, and just become a social club where we love and hang out with one another. There's nothing wrong with that. But the church is about the mission of God. That's the design. And not only in, in our county, but if you put together all the counties uh, that touch Toombs County, Montgomery, Trutland, Tattnall, uh, you know, Emanuel, Candler, Appling, all of these, you would come to a number of about 93,000 people uh, that do not have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe God has placed the church here, not just Connection, but the church, to reach these people. And I believe a part of us reaching these people is understanding what God has called each one of us to do and the part that he has played us to play. Saved people live sin. This is not something that Billy, me, can do by myself. I would if I could, but I cannot. God has designed the church to be bigger than one person. This is about us gathering and scattering out all across uh, our communities and all across our counties to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have influence with people that I'll never have influence with. You know people that I don't know. And there's 93,000 faces all across our, our sphere of influence that need the gospel. And I believe we need to take this seriously and need to begin to step into these people's lives and into the mission of God that God's called us. And I want to read a story to you today that I believe will teach us how this happens and how we can go about living this lifestyle of evangelism. And, and, and so Mark chapter 2 verses 1 is where we'll start. So if you've got your Bible open there, if you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me. So let me read it this way. This is Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And Jesus preached the word of God to them. Why do we preach the word of God? This is why we preach the word of God. Jesus preached the word of God. Verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. There were four guys and they brought a paralyzed man in. What did they do? Verse 4, since they could not get in uh, to Jesus, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat the man was lying on in front of Jesus. Listen, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? The four men. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't mean that the paralyzed man didn't have faith. Obviously, faith is how our sins are forgiven. But what it does mean is that the faith of these four men played a huge part in getting these, this guy to the feet of Jesus so that he could be saved and be forgiven. Listen to this, verse 6. Uh, now some teachers of the law were sitting there, these are the religious people, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow, Jesus, talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Listen, hey, they're right. The only person that can forgive our sins is God, right? Uh, eternally forgive our sins. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? All right, note to self, Jesus doesn't need you to speak to know your heart. Jesus knows your heart before you get here. And here's the good news of the gospel. He knows your heart, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he still loves you. 
He loves you enough for God to send his only son to die for you so that you could have a relationship with Christ. That's important to understand. Verse 9, Jesus says, Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So what's the point? He wants them to know that the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sins because that is our first and primary ultimate need. And so when he heals this paralyzed man, he's showing it as a sign that he basically is true. And when he says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. The next verse. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up, he took his mat and he walked in in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What an incredible story, right? This is one of the the most incredible stories in the entire Bible. To me, there's no story in the Bible that gets me more fired up about trying to reach people than this, this passage. I love this passage. I love it because it's so vivid. Like, you can almost imagine yourself in this house, think about it, standing room only. Uh, Jesus is preaching the word, he, who's way better than me, just as the, the greatest preacher ever, right? They're standing room only. You can't even come down the aisles, can't even fit in the front door. Think about it. It's just this huge uh, thing going on. Well, then you're sitting there, and you start to notice something hits you in the top of the head. And it's like, man, is there like dust? What is it, somebody throwing popcorn? Like, what's going on in the top of my head? Well, then you start to notice it's coming from the roof. And then you start to see the roof cave in. And then you see uh, uh, Joe Bob up, up through the roof saying, we got a way in. And then all of a sudden you see uh, uh, like a hammock start dropping down with this paralyzed man to the feet of Jesus. I mean, can you picture yourself in it? I've done a lot. Listen, I've preached a lot of places. I've preached to a lot of standing room only crowds. I've preached in multiple countries. I've never ever had an event happen like this where literally I'm preaching and the sermon gets interrupted by the roof caving in and somebody lowering a guy through the roof, right? This is a big deal. This is an incredible passage that we get the opportunity to study. And you can, you can think about this paralytic being lowered into the feet of Jesus. Think about the anticipation. Like, can this Jesus do anything about this? Is this the Jesus that he claims to be? Is he God? Does he have the power to forgive sins? Does he have the power to heal the paralyzed? The anticipation. And then Jesus, of course, proves that he is who he says he is. And we get to see this this man's life change forever because of the faith of these four men that lowered him through the roof. And so there's three things I want us to take away from today and I want us to learn from these four men that were a huge part of this man coming to know Jesus. I believe we can learn from them and God can use us in the same capacity that he has used these men. The first is compassion. These men had compassion on this paralytic. Two, these men had faith. They had faith that God could and would heal him, that he could and would save him, that he had the power to do so, but not only had the power, but he was willing. And then thirdly, they had the boldness to do something about it. It's one thing to have compassion and feel bad and and want someone to know Jesus. It's another thing to have the faith that God can and will save, but it's another thing to actually do something about it. So let's talk about these three things. The first is the compassion 
that they felt. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Can you feel what they felt? Their hearts were broken for this paralytic man. They were desperate for God to do something about him. We know this because of the length that they went to to get this man to Jesus. Their hearts were broken for their friend. They saw two urgent needs. One was his spiritual need to know God. He he needed to be reconciled to God. He needed spiritual life. It would have done no good for this man to be able to walk, but for him to walk straight into hell. And so his first and his most important need was forgiveness of sins so that he could be reconciled back to God and have hope and have purpose. And then secondly, they saw his physical need. This man was a paralytic. He couldn't walk. There's no no telling how long he had been on this mat. And day by day, people had walked by him and, 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 and felt sorry for him, but were never able to do anything about it. But these men saw that his needs physically and spiritually could be met in Jesus. This is compassion. This is a picture of compassion for us. It means to empathize with someone that is suffering or that is lost. It's, it's an emotion that we feel. It's a feeling that arises when we are confronted with another person's suffering. And then we feel motivated to relieve their suffering. This is an attitude of our heart. This is something deep down inside of us that has a heart for lost and hurting people. These guys were filled with compassion. And listen to me, compassion is a big deal because compassion reflects the heart of God. In the Christian faith, why do we need to be filled with compassion? Because our God was filled with compassion. In God's church, why do we need to be filled with compassion towards hurting and lost people because the God that we reflect to the world was filled with compassion for lost and hurting people compassion is a big deal and God wants it to be a reflective in his church so letter a compare uh, compassion is the heart of God how do we know this I want to show you how compassion is the heart of God if there's one word that describes our God compassion would be at the top of the list Listen, if I had to use five words to describe Jesus, compassion would be in the top five, maybe the top three, maybe even the top one. He is a compassionate God. We see this throughout the scripture. We see it most clearly in the lifestyle and the ministry of Jesus Christ. In his earthly ministry, he interacted with a lot of people. He interacted with good people. He interacted with lost people. He interacted with people that weren't so good and were not liked by other people. One of the people that he interacted with was a lady at a well, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This was a lady that had been through multiple divorces. She had given her life over to relationships and sex and love and thought that was going to fulfill her to the point where she had pretty much burned every bridge she had. She was out at a well in Samaria during the middle of the day in shame and guilt. And Jesus wasn't even supposed to go to Samaria. It was a Gentile place. He was a Jewish man. And he took a detour. And in that detour, he stopped by this well with this lady that was broken in her sin that people pretty much saw as a prostitute in that day. And he stopped. And where did he go? He went to the well. And what did he do? He didn't just get water. He talked to the woman and he told her, hey, what she was trying to fill her life with was never going to satisfy her. But he had eternal water that would satisfy her soul forever. He had compassion on her. When everyone else shunned her, Christ went to her 
and gave her eternal life. We see it in the life of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. I don't know what you know about a tax collector during this time. This is not a uh, CPA that's trying to help you get money back on your uh, taxes at the end of the year. This is more like the IRS trying to come after you to make sure you're paying a certain amount. A tax collector at this time would have been a traitor. He would have been hated by his community because what he did was the Romans hired this guy and said, hey, we will pay you a lot of money to steal and take a lot of money from your people. We don't know where the money is in your community. You do, so why don't you go tax as much as you can to get as much money from these people as you can, your family, your friends, everybody that you know, and we'll pay you a lot of money to take their money. This is not a guy that you would want to be around. This would be a guy that was shunned by society, a guy that if you saw coming, you would want to get away from him. Jesus shows up in his town. He doesn't go to the church. Where does he go? He goes to a tree. Who's in the tree? Zacchaeus, a wee little man, was in the tree, a tax collector that everybody hated. What did Jesus say? Hey, come down, for today salvation has come to your house. All the people he could have went to, who did he show compassion to? Zacchaeus. We see it with the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. Jesus comes out and he's, he's in the midst of a religious, almost a church gathering. They're ready to punish this lady, right? She's committed sin. She's committed adultery. By the law, she should be punished and put to death. They're all ready to stone her. Jesus comes up. What does he say? He who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And what happens? Stones start dropping to the ground and one by one people leave. And then what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Jesus showed compassion on a lady. Even when she didn't deserve compassion, he showed compassion. God shown that same compassion on you and I, and we should show the same for others. We see another series uh, uh, when Jesus walks up on Jerusalem. It says his heart broke because he saw sheep without a shepherd. It's the same way God's heart breaks over over lostness in our world when we see uh, we see it in Jesus's teaching think about the parable of the lost coin the parable of the lost sheep the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 listen I could talk about it all day Jesus cares about the one what happens if 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 the one goes astray if one person's lost in the midst of 99 saved people well we got 99 percent Jesus we're good right no you leave the 99 and you go after the one. This is the heart of our God. This is the heart of our God. This should be the heart of the church. Why do I tell you that there are 93,000 lost people in our sphere of influence? Because God cares about all of them. God wants to save all of them more than you and I want to save all of them. And God wants us to align to his heart. God's heart truly breaks over lostness. Letter B, compassion is the heart of God's church. Because this is the heart of God, this should be the heart of God's church. If I could use one word to describe our church, I would want it to be compassion. Because this is the heart of God. It's important. We see it in these guys. They had compassion on this paralytic. We see it in the heart of the church in Acts. They were serving the least of these. They were praying for people. God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. We see it in Paul's heart all throughout the New Testament in his writing. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I will become all things to all people so that some may come to know Jesus. Whatever it takes, if I need to dress a certain way, if I need to learn a language, 
If I need to talk a certain way, if I need to hang out, if I need to pick up a hobby that I don't know, I'll do whatever it takes apart from sin to reach people for Jesus because this is the heart of God. This is the heart of God's church. We see it in Charles Spurgeon. You may not know who that is. One of the greatest preachers of all time in the 1800s in England. He built one of the greatest churches ever in England. One of my heroes. Listen to what he says about the church. The church is a hospital. It's a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Listen to me closely. It's very easy for a church to become inward focused, especially a growing church that gets to a good size. It's very easy to say, well, man, we've, we've reached enough. We've kind of arrived. We, we can afford to pay our bills and we can do all these things. But that's not what God's called the church to be. Satan tries to attack the church by turning us in on ourselves. Where we fight, 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 or, or we say, man, it's great, let's get comfortable, everything's doing good, we're almost uh, building a building and all this stuff. But God says the mission is the priority. The mission, reaching lost people, is what God has called us to do. We must be a hospital for sick people, not a museum for saints. We see it with one of my favorite missionaries, C.T. Studd, in the early 1900s. Missionary from England uh, to India and China and a few other places. Listen to his statement. He says, some people wish to live within the sound of a church and chapel bell. Not me. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. This is my heart for Connection Church. There's plenty of people that are reaching church people. We got to go after the people that nobody's going after. You know what I'm saying? We got to hang out with the people that nobody's hanging out, the people that are too far gone, that nobody wants to darken the doors of their church because it would ruin their reputation as a church. Those are the people that God has called the church to reach. Those are the people that when they are reached, the glory of God shines incredibly bright in a community because of what God has the power to do. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. We cannot hate the people that God has called us to reach. We cannot hate them. You will not reach people. It's God's kindness that draws people to repentance. We can't expect lost people to act saved. Listen, you talk about getting frustrated. If you go to a ball game and expect a lost person cheering on the team to act saved, you're going to be frustrated. If you hang out with a lost family that doesn't know Jesus and, and you expect them to do the things that you do and act the way that you act, you're going to be frustrated and disappointed. We can't expect lost people to act saved. We can't shun people because they are broken and they're blinded to the light of the gospel. We can't shun them because they struggle with sins that are different than the sins that we struggle with. Just because someone struggles with this sin doesn't make them less than you. We all have different susceptibilities to different sin. But one thing's clear, we all have sin. And we all need Christ. And just because someone st struggles with a different sin than you, God didn't shun people because of their sin. He actually ran towards people and pursued them to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this reflects the heart of God. The church's approach is not run from lostness. It's to run into lostness with the hope of the gospel. So let me ask you a question. Is your heart compassionate towards the lost? Is your heart compassionate 
towards the lost. If there's one word that describes God, it's compassion. If there's one word that God wants to describe his church, it's compassion. If I used five words to describe your life, would compassion be one of them? Would compassion be one of them? Because listen, if compassion doesn't define you and me, then compassion will never define our church. The church is not about one person. It's not about one person. It's about us. We're a family. We're a team. And when God calls us to be compassionate, it doesn't work for one person to be compassionate. We all have to characterize the heart of God and be compassionate. What is your attitude towards the lost and the hurting? Do you even care about the lost and the hurting? Because right now there are people dying and going to hell all around us. And there's so many things we could busy our life with. But none of them are more important than the people around us that are dying and going to hell because they don't have a relationship with God. The way I like to think about it and the way that moves me anytime I feel like I'm not motivated to go reach somebody is I, I think about putting myself in the shoes of a lost person. I think about before I went on the trip to India, you know, it's, it's very easy for me to not care about people in India because I don't know people in India, right? I, my heart breaks for people in this community because I know the people of this community. But before I went to India, the, the prayer that I prayed was, God, help me put myself in their shoes. If I was a man in India that, that had no access to the gospel, that had no hope, that didn't know who Jesus was and what he had come to do, what would I want someone to do for me? I would want somebody to risk everything they had to come and tell me the gospel message, to tell me how I could be reconciled to God, to tell me why I was put on this earth, to tell me what my purpose in life was, to tell me that no matter what happened on this earth and the experiences that I had, that it was going to be okay because I had a God that had won the victory of eternity for me. That's what I would do. That's what we have to feel. That's the way that God would want us to be because our compassion is the difference between someone spending eternity suffering in hell and someone spending eternity in heaven rejoicing with us and rejoicing with the saints. It's our compassion. It was the compassion of these four men that made a difference in the life of this man. Not only did they have compassion that made a difference, they had faith. Listen, they had faith. It's incredible to think about this. It was the faith of these men, Jesus said, that made a difference. Because of their faith, son, your sins are forgiven. Think about it. Because of our faith to get someone to the feet of Jesus, God can and will heal them. He will restore them. He will save them for eternity. Listen to that. I say it this way. Their faith in Jesus unlocked forgiveness from Jesus. It's a good way to think about it. It was the key that unlocked the door to the forgiveness of Jesus. What was special about their faith? A few things. Their faith was confident. Listen, they had confidence, man. They had the confidence that if they could get this man to Jesus, that he would heal him, that he would restore him, that he would save him for eternity. Their faith was compassionate. It it loved the lost. It, it, It desired to see the lost come to Jesus. Their faith was creative. Creative by all means. I mean, that you get to the door, you're, you're, you, you and four guys are carrying this guy. No telling how far. You're tired. You don't know if you can go any further. You get to the door. There's standing room only. You can't even fit through the door. Their faith huddled up and said, all right, guys, we got a couple options. We can push our way through or we can get on the roof. 
And Joe Bob says, hey, I got a ladder. Let's go. He gets on the roof of the ladder. Well, a ladder don't help us break through the roof, Joe. What you got? Well, Billy's got a trailer, and I think in that trailer there's an axe. All right, climb down, go get it. Their faith was creative, whatever it took. You ever had that person that literally has an answer for every problem? I got a friend that has a trailer. When he comes to fix something, I don't know how he fits everything in that trailer that he fits in there. But any situation you find yourself in, I got something. I got something that I think will solve the problem. He goes in the trailer. He can't even fit in the trailer. You can't even see in the trailer. It's so full of stuff. And somehow he, cry, he crawls around and comes out with a, with a jackhammer. And I'm like, good Lord, what in the world do you fit? This is the faith that they had. It was creative. Whatever it took to get this man Jesus, they were willing. It was contagious. It was contagious. Don't you know, man, I, if I was in this situation and they came off this roof, I don't know where they were going next, but I was, I'm going to go with them because I want to see what Jesus is going to do next. Their faith was contagious because they believed God could and would, and then they were doing something about it. Letter A, they believed God had the power to save. A huge part of God, this guy's salvation and healing was the faith that these four men had because they believed God had the power to do so. These guys believed that God had the power to save, to heal, to deliver, to restore because they literally had seen it firsthand. They had seen it firsthand. They had literally, the two chapters before, we see in Mark chapter 1, God is, is Jesus is meeting the needs of people. He's healing people. He's, he's, he's saving people left and right. No matter what background they came from, he is doing the work. He has the power to save no matter who they are. They had experienced the salvation personally. They knew what God could do. And what God had did for them, they wanted this other man to experience the same thing that they had experienced in God. They wanted others to experience. Literally, there's not one person in the entire New Testament that comes to Jesus wanting to be saved, that he turns away. Read them. You got the rich young ruler, and you got several people that walk away because they don't want the offer of what Jesus offered them, but you never have a person that comes to lay theirself at the feet of Jesus that he says no. So we can have the faith that if we bring someone to the feet of Jesus, that God will and can do something about it. We sing songs like our God is mighty to save. Our God is greater. He's stronger. He's higher. What a powerful name Jesus is. Uh, my, even my son's favorite song that we sing at nighttime in our family worship. Our God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing that my God cannot do. We sing these songs, but do we believe it? Because listen to me, it's one thing to say that you believe that God has the power to save. But what we believe is reflected in how we act. And in the, in the cultural Christianity that we live in today, it's very easy to say, yes, I believe God can save. But it's another thing to live as if he can and has the power to save anyone. It changes everything. It changes the way we live. I want to tell you a very powerful story. Uh, in a book I read when I first got started in ministry by, by a pastor up in New York named Jim Cimbala. The book's Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Many of you probably know he's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, which is a very diverse church right in the middle of the heart of, of New York. Uh, well, he's, he's, he's very famous for their church being a church of prayer. 
Uh, he he says the statement pretty much every time I've heard him that uh, the health of your church should be measured by the prayer meeting, not by the Sunday gathering. Who's praying? Because the power of God is unlocked through prayer. And he was telling a story in the book about his daughter who was like a prodigal son. She just continued to run back to drugs, run back to drugs, run out there. She would run away from time to time. But he told about one night in this prayer gathering. I want you to listen to it. One Tuesday night, we entered into a time of prayer. Everyone was reaching out to the Lord together. A young woman whom I felt to be spiritually sensitive had written on a sticky note, Pastor Simbala, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and all pray for your daughter. So in a few minutes, I picked up the microphone and told the congregation what was going on with my daughter. There arose a groaning, a sense of desperate determination, as if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. Take your hands off of her. She's coming back. He says, I was overwhelmed. The force of that vast throne calling on God almost literally knocked me over. When I got home that night, I told my wife, uh, Carol, who was waiting for me. We sat at the kitchen table, and I said, it's over with Chrissy, which is his daughter. You would have had to be in that prayer meeting tonight. I tell you, if there is a God in heaven, this whole nightmare with her is finally over. And then 32 hours later, on Thursday morning, I heard a knock at the door. My daughter walked in, and we both just began to cry. Daddy, she said with a start, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything. So she continued, in the middle of the night, God woke me up and showed me that I was heading towards this abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any further as he assured me, I still love you. I'm not walking away. That same Tuesday night, the very hour the church was praying, God moved in her soul and showed her that she was heading toward destruction, all the while flooding her heart with a sense of God's love. This is our God. This is our God. And when we have faith that God can and will do something, it changes the way we think. It changes the way we pray. When we pray for people, listen to me, we carry them on the stretcher, the same way these four men have, to Jesus. It's literally, when we're praying for people, when we're having conversations with people, when we are moving in faith, it's like grabbing a stretcher, putting them onto it, and moving them to Jesus. Secondly, they believed God was willing to save. It's one thing to have the power to save. It's another thing to be willing to save. There's no way that they would have went through all the trouble that they went through to get this man on the roof, to bring him as far as they brought him from, and then lower him into Jesus if they did not believe that God was willing and Jesus was willing to save and restore this man. Why would they believe that way? Well, because they had seen it before. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, literally listen to this. It's not a coincidence that this is the story right before the one that we're reading. It says, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees. He said, if you are willing, then you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. And what did he say? I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. The good news of the gospel is not only does God have the power to save, 
The good news of the gospel is that he is willing to save. This changes everything. Thinking about the idea of the people in front of us, the people that we want to be saved, to know God, God wants them to be saved more than you do. At your strongest moment of wanting them to be saved, God wants them to be saved even more than you do. How would it change the urgency of your evangelism if you knew that God had the power to save and that he was willing to save? So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God can and will save? If these four men's fate were the difference, then me and you can be the difference for someone's life too. For your dad that doesn't know God. For, for, for the coworker that sits beside you every week that, that's living in misery, that has no purpose in life, that has just had all these bad things happen to them, that have ran away from the church because they feel like God doesn't love them. For your buddy that has gone too far, that you feel like has given up on God, that would never step foot in a church because of something someone said to him 15 years ago. Who is it in your life? Is it your friend that's a cultural Christian that, that, that knows all the religious jargon, but at the end of the day, his heart doesn't reflect the heart of Christ? God has the power to save them, to, 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 to fill them with his spirit and make them a new person. And he's willing to do it. So you've heard me say before, if God answered all the prayers that you prayed last week, how many new people would be in the kingdom of God this week? I want to flip that a little bit. If God saved all the people that you had a conversation with about the gospel last month, how many new believers would be in the kingdom of God today? Listen, it's one thing to say you believe it. It's another thing to, to, to allow it to move you to be active and to, be, to, to, to share the gospel, to go out and have conversations with people. Jesus would say if your actions reflect that you don't believe it, then you probably don't believe it. That was his issue with the Pharisees. So in front of you, on the chair in front of you, you should find a sticky note. I want to do a little illustration that I think will help some of us. This is one of the things I do in my own life when I start thinking about and praying for people. On that sticky note, as I've been talking this morning, probably somebody's coming to your mind. Somebody that you want to know God that you pray for, that your heart just burns for, there's compassion, there's faith in your life, I want you to write that person's name down. I'm not going to take it from you. You don't have to feel scared. Just write that person's name down. And I want you to stick that sticky note back where you found it. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with it here in a minute. So not only did they have compassion, not only did they have faith, but they also had boldness. They lived with boldness. There was a boldness that they lived with. They had the boldness to do something. Their boldness acted. Their boldness was, was strong. It was because they had compassion, because they had faith. They were bold. The same is true for us. If we truly believe that God can and will save, if we have compassion towards those lost people that God has given us, then we will step out in boldness. We will be willing to do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. Not only was their, was their boldness did it act, but their boldness overcame obstacles. A lot of people think it's easy when you begin to try to pursue people and share the gospel with people. Listen, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Because the last person that wants somebody saved is our enemy that's living and active. He's trying to do everything he can to keep a person from coming to know God, right? So he's going to make a crowded room. 
that you're going to have to climb up on the roof and tear a hole in and lower them down. But we got to be willing to fight through the obstacles of awkwardness, the obstacles of, of sacrifice to, to do exactly what these people to the feet of Jesus. Does this boldness characterize your attitude towards, is that you? Does that characterize saying? Can you imagine? They climbed down off the roof, and this guy walked right out. He had been saved to step when God tells him to step. Low that I, I had never eaten. I was raised by 10 of their kids, very involved in their community, involved in church. Um, we attended church Wednesdays and Sundays every week, and really life, life was very good. In my teenage years, um, as an early teenager, I began to experiment with some drugs, alcohol, and marijuana, and just began to just go down a path of, of really just seeking fun and fulfillment and you know ways that I thought was pretty typical for all teenage kids man I just was completely lost and continued to just pour on more and more drugs um, to the point to where um, you know I found myself homeless and um, I went through a cycle of about 10 years of, of you know, prisons and treatment centers and homelessness and just a back, this back and forth um, trying to figure this thing out. And I just couldn't do it, man. So I just stayed stuck. Definitely took me to a point of where at the end of my road, I really felt like there was only one option and the only option was, was to end things. And, uh, so the thoughts of suicide was just an obsession that wouldn't leave my mind. And, um, you know, I, I remember just feeling hopeless and helpless and just thought that would be the easiest way out. You know, I was unwilling to allow God to do the work and thought that, you know, it all was based on my performance and how I could do it. ended up losing my family to my addiction uh, my wife and I divorced and um, you know and I really went even deeper into a just a whirlwind of depression and shame and guilt and my solution was to turn back to the drugs this last prison term I was released in 2014 and, and I moved out here to Vidalia and when I visited the Blue Marquee in 2015, um, I was invited to a connect group and I saw men there that were actually being transparent with their life and all their problems. And this is the first glimpse of anything I'd ever gotten like that. Men who were just honest about where they were and were relying on God to, to help, you know, basically be for them what they were incapable of being for themselves. And so it just, uh, I think that was the first glimpse I had at what a true relationship with God was. Just to know that, that I could be exactly where I am, which was not in a good place, and that Christ would receive me as I was and really do the work in me instead of me trying with my best efforts to do the work within myself. First time coming, I know that we sit right here in these seats that 
Not getting honest with God about where where I was, I feel like for the first time in my life, I began to truly have a desire to pursue even getting to know God. Uh, I so badly wanted to hold on to bits and pieces of who I used to be, things that I didn't want to let go of. That never worked for me. I, I really um, could not live a, a double life anymore. I had to completely surrender and, and, and go all in and just, you know, give Christ lordship and let him be the king of my life. One thing that addiction does is, is it definitely destroys relationships. Um, you know, at the end of my road, I was at a point to where I had basically held every thing that I'd every individual that I had ever loved, um, I had held hostage and I had burnt bridges and God has definitely taken something that would seem incapable of, of being repaired and restoring it. Um, you know, definitely has helped me to create a, a new a new relationship with my wife today, Tiffany. Um, I have a relationship with my children from my first marriage today that. I, I thought that it was it was lost and it, it, it could never be anything. My wife Tiffany has been with me um, through the ups and downs of, of my addictions and definitely has um, been the one to lead the way as far as life change and seeing an individual truly begin to pursue God. Um, you know, the whole reason that I ever visited Connection Church in the Blue Marquee is, is she was at a point in her life to where things had changed and um, she had found this new desire to get involved in a church and she began attending small group too and, and it was something she was really into and it was something I was very resistant to. and. Um, Man, you know, she's she's been through so much with me, um, the ups and downs of, of my addiction and, and the life that I led is, is just been something that, you know, only by, you know, God's strength has she been able to hold on through all of that. So through this process, God had definitely instilled in me the desire to begin to help other individuals. Um, I realized that this is a gift only God could give me. I couldn't do it by my best efforts. And just knowing that it's something that he's given me, I don't, I don't believe it's mine to keep. I believe it's meant to be given away. When God set me free from active addiction, he placed a desire and a burden on my heart to help other men be restored to a life of freedom, hope, and purpose. So about three years ago, uh, me and Tiffany began working with addicts, we began taking them into our home one at a time. Um, actually, they began, you know, just sleeping in Grayland's bunk bed, and uh, we take them in and nurse them back to health. Um, 
know, provide them with food, water, shelter, the necessities, and, and employment. And um, you know, little did we know that that was actually the birth of Forge. Uh, it would soon grow. As the years go by, more and more men came, and, and we found out that that wasn't such a healthy situation uh, for the home to have, you know, um, recovering addicts there 24-7. So we decided to rent a house in Lyons, Georgia first, and uh, you know, that, that home filled up rather quickly, and we outgrew that and continued to, to press in to, to individuals and disciple people on a one-on-one -on -one basis while also others were pouring into us. Our first job when a man gets here is to build a relationship with that individual. Um, I was taught that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. By surrounding them with community and learning to accept their past as their past and know that Christ has done everything in their lives needed to restore them completely, they can let go of the shame and guilt and begin to come out of the shadows and begin to participate in life again. Through this process, what we've witnessed in my life and the lives of the other men we've invested in is this desire and this passion that arises in each of us. We've come to find out that restored men restore men. Forge exists to restore men to a life of freedom, hope, and purpose. So I don't, I don't know where today's message finds you. You know, I'm not saying God's asking you or calling you to go start a recovery center. Uh, but what I do know is he's asking you to do something. And he's asking you to be a part of the rescue team. He's asking you to give your life to Christ. If you've not been saved, he's calling you to salvation so that you can be a part of, of, of saving and, and being a part of the process of him saving other people. And so right now where, where you're at, I just want you to bow your head. I want you to ask yourself that. What, what is it? What is it that God's asking from you? If you're in here this morning, you say, Billy, that's me. I don't have a relationship with God. I've, I've never surrendered my life to Jesus the way Craig was talking about. Not just a little bit, but my whole life to Christ. And this morning you'd say, man, I never knew Christ loved me. Well, he loved you enough to send his son to die, to take your place, the punishment that you deserved on his own back, so that now you could be reconciled into a relationship with God and find freedom and purpose and hope in your life. And if that's you this morning, you say, Billy, that's me. I want that. I want to repent. I want to turn from my sin and trust in Christ. Would you raise your hand right where you are? I want to pray for you. You say, Billy, that's me. Amen. Say, Billy, for sure, 100%. I'll give you a second. Anybody else? You raise your hand. So, Father, I pray right now. God, would you help us? Father, we want to be a part of what you're doing. God, we realize you're saving people, you're rescuing people all around us. God, open our eyes. God, give us compassion towards lost people. God, give us faith that you can and will save them. And Father, give us the boldness and the courage to step out in our lives. Maybe it's across the street, maybe it's at work, maybe it's on our ball teams, maybe it's going to another country or being a part of a church plant in another city, whatever it is, God. Would you open our hands this morning to be a part of what you're doing? Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. One last thing I want to do. We're about to sing a song. And I asked you to write on a sticky note a person that has been on your heart for God to save. As we sing this last song about the power of God, I want you to sing this as a prayer over them.